our time to open the Word of God together, so I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. And while you're doing that, I'll just make a couple comments. Uh, one is in reference to Joe. I'm not sure if I want Joe to be healed. I think if Joe stays in the hospital, the whole hospital will be saved. So let's just leave Joe there for a while. I think God sent Joe there to, to, to minister medicine to the hospital rather than them help Joe. So, of course, I know that would be difficult for Janet, so I'm not sure what to pray when it comes to Joe. Um, also, I was uh, just you know thankful for Randy's question because it kind of feeds into uh, some of what I want to talk about tonight, about blessing and, and part of the blessing on my life from what God has done, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention that in just a moment, but I want to I want to just begin our time then tonight by, by reading for us from John chapter 12 as we begin our time, uh, verses 1 to 11, and then just talk about the subject of worship and being a worshiper, what that looks like. So follow along as I, as I read. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And Jesus therefore said, Let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not <clears throat> always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. They came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. The chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, I said I was going to share with you a little bit about what was a blessing in my life. As most of you know, I have had the privilege in my entire life of growing up in a home where Christ was proclaimed. And I guess if I could think about my life and the blessing of God upon my life in, in, a, in a grand picture, uh, include without stating all the little details that took place throughout life that were blessings from God, but the most overarching was just that, that I grew up in a home where Christ was proclaimed, at least from the time that I could really remember things in any kind of way. My dad was saved when I was five years old. And so although I did not truly come to know Christ personally myself until I was in my 20s, I grew up under the teaching and tutelage of God's Word. And of course that for me has been such a great blessing to me and sadly to my chagrin over years that I have at times squandered wrongfully. But along with that privilege, as I think about evangelicalism, I have also had the opportunity to be in various churches. My mom and dad and I moved from time to time to other parts of the, of the country. 
And, of course, once I got married, I moved several different times. My wife and I have been married 30 years, and we've moved 15 times in our married life. And, of course, we've been here 10 years, so you figure that out. Uh, and that has allowed me to see firsthand the living out of what we might describe as modern-day Christianity, Christianity of our time. And the longer I walk with the Lord and the more that I learn of His character that convicts life as you live and walk with the Lord, the more I am disturbed by what I see happening in the evangelical world. You hear these kinds of things from me from time to time as I survey Christianity. Christianity, as it is explained and as it is lived by many in our world that would profess Christianity, it is not the Christianity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just be blunt about that. Let me just say that as plainly as I can. Oftentimes what you see in our modern day as what is touted as Christianity is not Christianity at all. The Christianity that oftentimes we see in our day is no longer exclusive Christianity. It is an inclusive kind of Christianity. In other words, anybody and everybody who claims some kind of faith or some kind of religious practice is known as, quote-unquote, a Christian. You hear it all over the news. You hear it in other places. It's no longer an exclusive reality that is only in light of who Jesus Christ is even though the Scriptures tell us that to be known Christians, true Christians are known by the fruit they bear in their lives, it seems today that just the words, I'm a Christian, are enough to be accepted rather than seeing an outward fruit in the life. That if someone just simply says, oh yes, I'm a Christian, that seems like anybody will accept that as being reality. So in our day, you can just claim to know Jesus. You can attach yourself to whatever you have defined Christianity to be according to your own little definition. And in most places, that's good enough to be accepted as someone who in some shape or form is a follower of Christ. And so I ask the question tonight, what has happened to biblical Christianity? What has happened? I mean, I've even seen titles of books that say all roads lead to the same place. Well, that's not true. There's only two roads. There's a wide road and there's a narrow road. And one road leads to destruction and one road leads to heaven. So if all roads lead to the same place, then then we're not reading the same book. What has happened to biblical Christianity? Whatever happened to living as lights in a dark, crooked, perverse generation? The, the world in which we live, we are to appear as lights in the world, holding fast, the Scriptures say, to the word of life. Whatever happened to the seriousness of our duty to worship Christ simply because He's worthy of our worship rather than worshiping only when it's convenient. Does it not mean anything to those who profess to know Jesus Christ, what we might even title professing believers? Does it not mean anything when God says that we are to be in the world but not of the world? 
the Apostle Paul makes an interesting admonition in Romans chapter 12. I can tell you this now because we won't get there for probably, I don't know, several, several months, if not years, in our study of Romans. And you'll have forgotten this already. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul gives this admonition, this urgent admonition. He says, I urge you, brethren. Okay, Paul, what's so urgent that you, that you use such a strong urgency, such a strong language as a direction, as an exhortation for us as professing believers? What is it that's so urgent to you in order to do that? And Paul answers, by the mercies of God. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, because God has been merciful to you in offering you a way through Jesus Christ to be reconciled to Him, because God has done that by His graciousness, in order that you might be able to do what He's created you to be doing, what is that? Worship Him with a pure heart. In other words, because of actual guiltlessness before God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness that we learned of, then I urge you strongly to offer your bodies. Offer your bodies. What does He mean by that? He means your entire life, everything you are. Whatever it is you do, however it is you think, whatever it is you say, your entire life, offer it to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Why? Because, Paul says, this is your reasonable service of worship to Him. This is what's reasonable. You see, the reason so many who profess to know Christ do not live in any way as if Christ has affected their lives is because they either do not know Christ at all, even though they've attached themselves to some form of whatever Jesus they have developed in their mind or whatever somebody has told them, or... They do not understand what salvation has done in reconciling them to God. So either because of self-imposed ignorance or just plain indifference, those who truly know Christ are not true worshipers of Christ as God intended. And I believe churches across the world are full of what I would label as stagnant believers. True believers, but stagnant in their Christian faith. Those who are not growing because they are self-imposed in their ignorance to as what God has actually accomplished for them. Or they are not believers at all, but think they are simply because they've attached themselves to Christ as if He has attached Himself to them. And so what we need in evangelicalism today is a fresh look at what true worship is and what it isn't. And I believe we get a glimpse of that tonight in John chapter 12. You remember John wrote 
this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why it's here. John chapter 20 clearly says that. John says, everything I wrote, everything I put in here, whatever is here, it's there so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. So that we might actually believe who Jesus is. And through that believing, our life would be utterly and completely changed and we would actually do what we were created to do, what God had created for His glory. So that's my hope tonight. Our outline is just really simple. Really simple. Two points. True worshipers and false worshipers. That's it. That's the two points. True worshipers and false worshipers. That's all I want us to see today. And I want us to evaluate where we are in light of what we love. How do we know if we are true worshipers of Jesus Christ? When I say worship, I do not want us to think only of being in a, in a service at church that we call a worship service. I don't, I don't want us to think like that. Uh, certainly that can be an aspect of our worship, and it is if we truly want to honor God. But as Paul said, worshiping with our entire life. That's how I want us to think, in the Romans 12 kind of way. Ourselves as, a, as an expression in every kind of way of worship to God. Now, before we get to that, let's not forget that this is ultimately about Jesus Christ. This isn't about us. Sometimes we come to scriptures and we find these principles and we draw these principles out. Sometimes we focus heavily on us and really this is about Jesus Christ and our belief in Him. That's why John wrote it. Right? One undeniable reality that we find in this text is that Jesus is actually the resurrection and the life. Right? That's what he said to Mary uh, and to Martha in the previous chapter. If you would simply believe, you'd see the glory of God. I am the resurrection and the life. We can't forget that. And no one can genuinely refute it. Even here in the Scriptures. Nobody can refute it. To deny that is to deny the obvious. Why? Because Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, who had been in the grave four days, isn't just here once again on the scene for us to go, hey, gee whiz, look, Lazarus is hanging around. No, he's been on the scene since Jesus left him on the scene after he raised him from the dead and went away to Ephraim. He went out of Jerusalem to Ephraim and Lazarus was still there in Bethany while Jesus is gone. So that's one proof that Jesus is the resurrection and life. He's the one who said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus did. And the other proof who Jesus is by way of resurrection is that they want to kill Lazarus again. How would you like to be Lazarus? No one wants to kill a myth. If Lazarus hadn't been raised from the dead, then why in the world would the Pharisees want to kill him? He's really alive. And Jesus Christ is the one who did it. So that's the ultimate drive of this passage, that we might believe that Jesus is, in fact, that, the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is the one who actually came 
and calls dead people to life. We must believe that. And so with that in mind, that let me just say it this way, that has to be the backdrop of our worship. That has to be what undergirds our worship. If that doesn't undergird our worship, then we don't understand where we were before. Christ being who He is has to undergird our worship or it's not really worship at all. It's just activity. So with that in mind, let's begin then to look at the character of true worshipers. John says, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I always love those editorial notes, it seems like to me. I mean... Why does John have to put that? Why does the Holy Spirit put that there? Uh, uh, Only to really reiterate the reality that this is the same guy that was dead four days in the previous things that I wrote. This is that same Lazarus. Don't, Don't mix it up with some other guy. This is that guy. And so they made him supper there. Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table seems very mundane just to read those verses, and it certainly isn't a church service taking place, but there's a whole lot of worship happening here. There's a whole lot of worship taking place, and it's because of the belief of who Jesus is. We know that just a short time earlier, because we studied chapter 11 already, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He'd been in the grave four days. Jesus heard of his sickness even prior to his death and Jesus remains where he was two more days. Jesus ensures that the situation is going to be completely hopeless, that Martha Mary is going to be totally distraught, that Lazarus is going to be dead and that there's no sense even in superstition like the Jews had that the Spirit could ever think about returning to a dead body. He'd been in the grave four days. This is what took place. This wasn't something that you might see today where someone just stops breathing and they're resuscitated by CPR. That's not what Lazarus' death was. No, he was absolutely dead. This was Christ going to the cemetery. Cemetery, yeah. There's a Freudian slip. Christ goes to the cemetery. He calls the name of the person on the headstone. And the grave opens up. And the person walks out of the place where he'd been lying, lifeless, as if they'd never been dead. That's that's really what took place in John chapter 11. Is it any wonder that the resurrection of Lazarus made the unbelieving leaders of the day, the Pharisees, is it any wonder that they're extremely worried about their popularity? I mean, they're not doing anything like that. Here comes this guy, and he raises this guy from the dead. Bethany is just a short distance from Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley up over the Mount of Olives. It's not far. Their popularity is in trouble. In fact, if there was a court of law that, that, that was held that day and the prosecution brought in, uh, or, or the defense attorney brings in Lazarus, uh, who was truly resurrected as the dead guy who's now resurrection, whatever prosecution's case was there, it would be completely shot. 
Here's proof. And the chief priests knew that. That's why they began to plot against Christ. They wanted to kill Christ. Unless they got rid of Christ, unless they got rid of the perpetrator of their problem, their problem's just going to continue. And so, as we learned last time, the, uh, the appointed high priest, Caiaphas, makes this prophecy concerning Jesus Christ that he would come to death. There would be one who dies for the nation because you guys don't want all the people to die for the nation and that's not what I want either. And so Caiaphas shares that, not knowing he's prophesying about the death of Christ. And so from that day on, as we learn, they plotted to kill Christ. So if there was a chief priest top ten list of wanted people, Christ was on the top of the list. Lazarus, of course, as we find out in this text, got on that list too. John tells us here in chapter 12 then that it's now six days before the Passover. So now this is, this is the, the week, the, the, the week that has been instilled in place that Israel is supposed to celebrate this Passover, this remembrance of when God brought them out of Egypt. And Jesus has come back to Bethany. He was away for a while. He was out there past Jericho. And Martha and Lazarus and Mary make him dinner. That's why it says in verse 2, so they made him supper. The they there is Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. In Mark's Gospel, if you were to go there, Mark chapter 14, verse 3, it tells us that this is the home of Simon the leper that they're at. Matthew tells us that his disciples are there. So you have Jesus, his disciples, you got Simon the leper who's there, and you got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who's there. So there are at least 17 people in this home for dinner. John tells us first that Martha is serving. Martha is serving. Now this is the first characteristic that I want us to to just draw from this text that we need to learn about true worship. True worship. True worship is seen in sacrificial service. True worship is seen in sacrificial service. Martha is serving. They made him supper there, and Martha is serving. And notice, she is serving others. She's serving those who are there. And in doing so, she is worshiping Christ by her service. Remember, this isn't a church service. This isn't something where where we sing hymns and all those kind of things. This is a dinner, and Martha simply is serving. Why? Because of Him. Because it's Jesus. She's serving her Christ. From what we know about Martha, this is what Martha always seemed to do. She used to serve. In the past, she wasn't so happy in serving. In fact, she got rather irritated in serving. She, however, is now serving without grumbling and without complaining to God with her life. She's serving for the right reasons, I believe, and with the right heart. 
We need to remember what her attitude was like in Luke chapter 10. Maybe you remember from that when we went there, when we were studying a few chapters ago. When Jesus had come to their house the first time, she served, but she did not serve out of a devotion to Christ or a love for Christ. She served. She was doing the activity. She was doing the practice of serving. But it was not service. She was serving out of duty. That's what Martha always did prior to knowing Christ. And she was angry when others wouldn't help her. Lord, tell Mary to get off where she's sitting and come help me. That's what she was doing before. She even rebukes Christ. In the brashness of her service to Christ, she rebukes Christ. But now... Martha's heart is different. Her encounter with Christ before He had raised her brother from the dead had changed her life. Oh, she didn't know everything about Christ. She she still had a struggle when her brother was in the grave and Christ came and she said, you could have come sooner. You might have been able to do something if you'd come sooner. She was still having some struggles with that, but her life was changed. And I believe she understood that she could do what God had equipped her to do. And that was serve with the right heart. She could do it for the right reasons, and she could do it as worship to Christ. Rather than duty, because she truly believed. I think Martha understood hear what she had been forgiven of by God. Therefore, she loved Christ much. And it showed in her service to others. She just served. You notice she's not telling Jesus here, hey, go go tell Mary to, to come and help. She's not saying any of those things. John's not writing any of that. Martha is serving in a whole different way. Martha understood what that worship of Christ was now like. And she was worshiping through service because of Christ. Her preparing a meal with the right attitude was worship. And I think that's a lesson for us. You know, these words aren't just simple words here. So they made him supper there and Martha was the one serving because that's what Martha always did. That's, that's sometimes what we hear. I think there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here for us. Engaging in spiritual service is worship. Engaging in spiritual service is worship. If the heart is right with God, if the heart is right in serving, it's worship. Why? Because it shows that you acknowledge that God has gifted you God has given you abilities and ways in which you can serve others, not only in the spiritual realm, but also in the physical realm. So that you might use those gifts for His glory. And when you're serving others, because Christ has gifted you to do so, it glorifies God. And that's worship. That's worship. So whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. 
It simply means that God is reflected in the very things that we do. God's character is reflected in us like God's very character was reflected. The glory shone off Moses' face after he met with God. So whether we're fixing a meal or whether we're washing clothes, whether we're helping someone mow their lawn or shovel their driveway or whether we're the one who formally teaches the Word of God to other people in the Sunday school class or in children's ministry or from the pulpit, whatever it is, all of us have been gifted. All of us has been given by God through the power of the Spirit according to what He's given us for the edification of the whole body of each one another Our body is a spiritual service of worship to Jesus Christ so that Christ would be glorified through the use of us. That's what Martha's doing. She's just serving. People say, I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. You can serve. Just serve. Just serve. Just jump in and serve. I was reading a description of Catherine Booth recently. Catherine Booth was the wife of the founder of the Salvation Army. And her son said this of her, quote, she began her public ministry when I was five years old. But her own home was never neglected for what some would call the large sphere. Both had been opened to her by her God. She saw his purposes in both. And in the humble duties of the kitchen table, her hands busy with the food, or in the nursery when the children were going to bed, or at the bedside of a sick child, she was working for God's glory. Worship. She was just worshiping. Martha, Catherine Booth both understood that that was worship to God when they just served God and whatever He gifted them to do. And that, and, the, and I think the transcending point of all of that is just this. Loving service is always the characteristic of those who have their hearts rightly attuned to Jesus Christ whom they say they love. Spiritual service is always the outworking of that. So when someone says, I love Jesus, or I, I have faith in Jesus, and, they, and, and they're not serving anybody, they're not engaged in ministry, I scratch my head and say, do you know the one who saved you at all? Has he not changed your life? Then why aren't you worshiping him through serving? Because true disciples worship through serving. Well, that's number one. True disciples worship through service. Number two is this. True disciples worship through fellowship. Fellowship. We worship through service. Secondly, we worship through fellowship. John says in verse 2 that Martha was serving and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. That means there were others who were reclining with him, but I think this is the second characteristic of true worshipers. They are continually in communion with Christ and desiring to be with those who know Christ. 
even though we do not know much about Lazarus, there isn't much in the scriptures about him other than that he was sick, he died, Jesus brought him back to life. We don't know anything except here that he was in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and he loved to be with those who were in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lazarus is one of those who's reclining with Jesus. And I think it's interesting, the neglect of this aspect of worship surprises me, I think, most of all in evangelicalism today. What is it? Maybe you can help answer this question in your own mind as you think about Christians. What is it that keeps believers away from the fellowship of other believers? What is it that keeps us from being with one another, fellowshipping together? Is it recreation? Is that what keeps us away? Maybe, maybe what keeps us away is a, is a schedule so loaded with our self-imposed business that we have to get done that we no longer have time for God and His people. Maybe that's it. What is it that motivates believers to violate the command of Hebrews 10 and forsake the assembling of the body together? Why is it so difficult? Why does it seem to be so difficult for people who claim Christ at times to come and to be with God's people in order to commune with God through the Word of God? True disciples love to be together with God's people. Why? Because they're like-minded. They're like-minded. They enjoy the spiritual refreshment that comes together through the ministry of being together. I think about this with prayer. I was mentioning this with the men on Monday nights when we were talking about some of the characteristics of of why sometimes it's difficult to find leaders in the church and saying some other things. We got into talking about prayer. Erwin Lutzer said years ago, if we actually believed prayer worked, we would fill the place when we said we were having a prayer time. I thought, wow, that's that's a pretty heavy indictment. I wonder sometimes, what is it that, that causes us to not be together when, when the Word of God is opened, when we can commune with one another and we can think about the things of God? It isn't simply because Christians have a delight of the occasion, right? I, I don't like coming out, especially on nights like tonight when it's bitterly cold and rainy and you're thinking you're going to turn into an icicle. No. We come together because true believers delight in the challenge. We delight in the encouragement of being with one another and interacting on spiritual matters. That's why we get together. That's why we endure those simple little things of life. I think we've lost that to a great extent in our Christian society. Lazarus was a true worshiper and he worshiped through fellowship. He had been dead. Now he's alive. We're no different, right? We're no different spiritually speaking. All of us who truly know Christ were dead. And now we are alive because of Christ, because of the one who is the resurrection and the life. 
And it's our great privilege to worship God through fellowship. I mean, if we don't like being with each other now, why would we ever want to go to glory together? If we can't handle each other in temporal times, why do we want to spend eternity looking at each other? One man said it this way, quote, It takes two to fellowship. One speaks, another responds. We have fellowship with Him when we get before Him and learn from His Word and He speaks to us. And we fellowship when we challenge each other through that same Word, unquote. Fellowship. Yeah, we're here at what we have labeled in society church service, but this is fellowship. We even have it on our church marquee. We are Fellowship Bible Church. So true worshipers worship through service. True worshipers worship through fellowship. There's a third here. There's a third. And that is this, true worshipers worship through total sacrifice. Complete sacrifice. Notice verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's an interesting passage. Mary takes the perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet. But what does that say about her sacrifice? Well, I think first of all, it says her, her sacrifice was extremely costly by way of monetary sums. It, it, it cost her a lot. John tells us that it wasn't just any perfume. It was a perfume of pure nard. That's a perfume from a plant in, that's native only to India. So it was an imported perfume. Very costly. I read someone who, who said in today's dollars it would have been upwards of more than $21,000. But to Mary, that wasn't even important. Why? Because none of that matters in comparison to Christ. The value of whatever we have matters nothing in comparison to Christ. Her most treasured possession was not something material. Her most treasured possession was her Savior. To Mary, perfume may have been important. After all, she had a year's worth of it. At least that's what we know from what it could have been sold for, 300 denarii. 300 denarii was like a year's worth of wages. She had a year's worth of it. It was important in some kind of way, but it wasn't as important as Christ. To Martha, perfume didn't seem to matter all that much. But her work did. What she was doing, her tasks, and so Martha, her sacrifice was not perfume. Martha's sacrifice was her effort, was her perspiration, if you want to put it in a liquid form. That's what Martha sacrificed before Christ. She gave herself, her all, her effort in that way. And to Christ, it was just as valuable. Why? Because the sacrifice cost. It costs us something to sacrifice, and that's the nature of a sacrifice. 
There's a cost to it. King David said it this way, 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In order to sacrifice that which is of value, we have to let go of it. And I don't know about you, but if you're like me, the more you walk with God in your Christian life, the more you realize how much you're holding on to. What is it that we value most? That's the question that we really have to ask when it comes to sacrifice. What is it we value most? Maybe it's our bank account. Who knows how large it is, how expanding I would like it to be. We do everything to maintain it to a certain level, and if it drops below that level, we begin to panic as if the world's ended. Maybe we've even budgeted God into our money rather than budget what is left over for us and give the rest to God. Maybe for some of us, what we value most is our position, our reputation, who we are, our relationship that we have with some people. And see, the question isn't for us. I don't want us to sit there and go, gosh, you know. I mean, the question isn't, should I not have any of that? That's not the question. That's not the question. The question is, are we willing to give it up? Are we willing to give it up? What's the value of it in comparison to our relationship with Christ? Because Christ is of greater value. That's the issue. You see, I believe Mary is an example to all of us of what it means to worship God by giving Him your best. Giving Him what you value most. And so Mary's sacrifice was costly, but it wasn't only costly. It was costly, notice, in a personal way. Notice what she says. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, if you understand anything about the ancient Near East, the hair of a woman was her glory. That's who she was. That's why it said a woman was to have long hair, a man wasn't to have long hair. It was, it was her glory. But Mary humbly bows and by way of action, doing for Christ, she says to Christ, not only can you have my possessions, this perfume that I have, but you can have me. I'll serve you however I need to. I'll give you me. I'll give you the very thing that is my personal recognition. And you know what it doesn't say here? It doesn't say... Christ said, no, 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 Mary, stop doing that. Don't bow at my feet. Don't worship at my feet. In fact, that's, that seems rather frivolous. Don't, don't do that. Christ doesn't even stop it. That's another testimony to who he is, isn't it? He doesn't even stop her. The Old Testament commanded, right? You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. And Christ does not stop Mary. Why? He's God. He demands our worship. John said, I wrote this that you may know that He is the Christ and that by believing in Him you may have life in His name. Listen, He's God. Mary worships Him and He doesn't even stop her. 
God. He demands our worship. Our worship is seen through service. Our worship is seen when we fellowship. Our worship is seen when we're totally abandoned to God and self-sacrifice. And then John says, and the fragrance filled the house. Filled the entire place. I love that. I love that. It was perfume. When perfume goes, it fills the house everywhere. But I think there's an implicational lesson here for us about worship and what it does. I'm not trying to, to say this is some spiritual meaning behind, uh, within these words, and it really wasn't real. No, real perfume, and it really smelled the place up, and it was really nice. But I think there's a, an implicational truth that we can draw out of here. Because I believe it indicates that true worship is always a blessing to those who are around. The perfume, Mary's costly personal sacrifice, blesses everybody who's around. It goes everywhere. Listen, if we're true worshipers of Christ, then others will see Christ and others begin to think of Christ. That's the idea. That's what true worshipers do. They truly worship. But what of those who are false worshipers, false disciples? What do they do? Because they have no concept of what worship means. Notice what our text says in verses 4 to 6. But, contrast, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, I love that, one of those who's closest to him, who's intending to betray him, says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, he couches it with nice terms. Oh, listen, it should have been a charitable donation. But we get that little interjection by John there through the Holy Spirit. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he's a thief. And as he held the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. So you read this text and you go, had Christ forgotten about the poor? I mean, Christ doesn't stop her. Verse 7, let her alone in order that she might keep it for my day of burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Did Christ not care about the poor? Was he being insensitive to them? certainly couldn't attach that kind of attitude to Christ. And those who truly are worshipers of Jesus Christ certainly would never forget the poor and the needy. True Christians would never do that. But that's not who Judas is. Judas is a false disciple. He's a thief. He's a greedy person. He's out for one person and one person only, and that is self. So all he sees is how I'm losing out on something. He, he, all he sees is it's a waste. Martha shows selfless service to Christ. She gives of herself and she serves Christ. Lazarus shows selfless fellowship before Christ and with the 
those who are fellowshipping with Christ, and Mary shows selfless sacrifice to Christ as she pours out this perfume and, and serves him by giving her all and wiping her feet with his hair. And Judas, all he does, he's self-serving, self-loving, and unwilling to sacrifice anything. You see the contrast? Why? Why is he like that? Because to the heart that has never been transformed by God, worship seems to be a waste of time. Not only is it a waste of time, it's impractical altogether. Why would anybody do that? Yet Jesus says, look, leave her alone. Let her alone. You got the poor with you always. You don't always have me. And by the way, she's doing this, preparing for my burial. Mary knew something that was going to take place by the grace of God with Jesus Christ in short order. What Mary did, the sacrifice that was made was because of Christ's sacrifice for us. That's why we serve Christ, isn't it? Because Christ sacrificed for us. Without the death of Christ, all our good deeds become just that, charitable activity. That's all they are. does nothing before God. But through the death of Christ, you see, this is where the belief that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the resurrection and the life, that true belief gives us life through the, the death of Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, our spiritual service of worship, which is a reasonable thing because it's, an, it's what we ought to do because of the mercies of God that He's given us, what does that do? It propels us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because we love Christ more than anything. Our greatest testimony is not what we do for Jesus. greatest testimony is what Jesus has done for us. And what He has done for us propels true worshipers to serve Him through that. To fellowship with one another because of that. To sacrifice everything because He's worthy of that. Martha was serving with all she had. Lazarus wanted to be with Christ and his people with all he had. Mary, of course, wanted to be serving Christ through selfless sacrifice. In fact, Lazarus' testimony, by the way, if you just think about him, his testimony must have been so huge, not just because of who he was, but because people came to see him and what he said about Jesus Christ. The verse 9 says that the Jews had learned that he was there, and they came not just for Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Yeah, yeah, Jesus became almost a second fiddle to Lazarus. No wonder the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death. Let's get rid of both of these people. So 
really is a picture of what happens when Christ changes your life. This is what happens. He produces true worshipers. All of them gave their best for Christ because of what He had given them. And many got to see Christ because of it. Right? Isn't that what it says? Lazarus was a huge testimony because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were what? Believing in Jesus. I'm sure when they came to see Lazarus, they said, oh, there's that guy that was raised from the dead. Lazarus said, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm the guy who Jesus raised from the dead, but that's not the important thing you need to know here. You need to know Jesus who raised him from the dead. Right? That's what it is. So I wonder, I wonder, as we just close our time with this thought on our mind, can others tell, can others tell if we've been with Christ? They certainly could tell that Lazarus had been. They certainly could tell that Martha had been, Mary had been. And others tell if we have been with Christ. Are we true worshipers? The next time Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the final week of his life begins. We'll get to that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. What a blessing to just look into this text, Lord, and just to see the reality of what you have accomplished through raising Lazarus from the dead. What it tells us about you, what you have accomplished for all those who believe upon you. We know that you are indeed the resurrection and the life. We know the true worshipers serve you. True worshipers want a fellowship with you and with those who know you. And true worshipers simply want to sacrifice for you. Help us do that, Lord. Help us be that way, not so that people look at us and go, oh yeah, what great Christians they are. No, we don't care about that. We just want them to see you. We just want to serve in such a way that they might see you. Lord, and if there be a Judas heart in us, I pray that you would reveal that, convict us, that we might turn from our selfishness. Cause us to fully and truly repent of that turn. Not just in words, but with our whole self. We might fully serve you as we are. Thank you for our time. Bless each one of these folks here, those who are away. Lord, we pray for our brother Joe who's dealing with medical issues that, that they're trying to figure out. Lord, we pray that the testimony of Joe would go far and wide in that hospital and maybe be like the Apostle Paul when he was in prison that the whole Praetorian Guard know about Joe. May the whole hospital know about Joe. Comfort Janet. Give her strength and grace in the midst of this. Help us to serve them in the way that we can. That you might be honored and glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.